It's time to move into our study this morning. And this morning we are, as we mentioned earlier, up to Daniel chapter 7. It's an incredible chapter and so applicable for the days in which we live because we start to see many of the things that Daniel received in this dream and this vision being fulfilled uh, right in front of us. Of course, we have the benefit of history. We have the experience of the, the ages to look back and see that that which Daniel saw in his vision was looking forward. But so much of the things that he saw, we now know to be true from history. So they were fulfilled, as we find in Scripture. Um, the prophecies in God's word are always accurate. They're always fulfilled um, to the letter, to the detail. Um, and so we uh, go into this chapter with an air of uh, excitement because it really is uh, right where we are. Um, so let's uh, bow our hearts and then just uh, time, go into this time of study. So Father, we just commit to you, Lord, this time of study. We pray that you open our understanding, uh, Lord, spiritually as well as intellectually. Lord, help us to understand how these things fit together. But most importantly, Lord, help us to understand the spiritual significance of these things. Why you gave us prophecy in the first place. Lord, your word speaks of the prophetic word shining brighter unto that perfect day. Uh, Lord, we recognize that as we get closer to your return, Lord, prophecy is there to lead us and to guide us home. Um, Lord, just like a, a light in a harbor. Um, so, Father, we pray this morning that you would use your word to encourage and bless and edify us, that these things we read, Lord, would stir us. At the same time, Father, you would help us to have that uh, understanding of how uh, the things that are revealed in your word are being fulfilled and coming to pass in our days. Uh, the Lord, we would be wise in this generation. Lord, you've taught us to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. So, Father, help us to take these things and use them for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the chronological uh, chronological order uh, of the chapters in the book of Daniel, as we've already mentioned, uh, are not quite how they're laid out. So we've seen already that the book opens, of course, in chapter one with the captivity beginning as Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem. Uh, we then have in chapter two, and this is what the children are actually looking at this morning in their study. Uh, we have this dream of Nebuchadnezzar's. Uh, which depicts this golden image um, from or, or the, uh, sorry, an image with a head of gold, which is obviously symbolic of Babylon. And that's very clearly stated in chapter two and that the subsequent metals of this image, the chest and arms um, being of silver, the belly and thigh of bronze and then the legs, these two legs made of iron and then the feet, these 10 toes made of iron mixed with clay, that they represent world empires that are yet to come from Daniel's point of view. And then, of course, we get to chapter three. Uh, that's when we have the fiery furnace incident where Daniel's um, uh, colleagues, his uh, prayer partners, if you will, end up being thrown into this fiery furnace and yet they trust God and God, of course, brings about this incredible deliverance. And then chapter four, those are, of course, in chronological order. But then we jump to chapter seven. So that's the next chapter uh, in terms of the dates that these things are fulfilled. And you can see that we're around about 552 BC. 
when these things start to uh, unfold. And then uh, in a couple of years from this point for Daniel, he's going to receive another vision, which will give even further clarity about some of the details of the vision we're going to be looking at this morning. So that just gives you a, a rough idea of where we are. Um, again, the book is divided really into two sections. Uh, there's the historical chapters, uh, which you can see there, chapter one, two, th- uh, three, four, chapters five and six. They're really dealing with matters of history. Um, and uh, again, there's lots of verification. Lots of great scholars have over the years shown the uh, authenticity of these things, the historical accuracy of these things. So we don't need to be any doubt. A lot of people will try and tell us that Daniel was written later. Uh, the critics hate the book of Daniel because it is so incredible in terms of the prophecies it gives. So, of course, the only logical conclusion for the critics is it must have been written later. And yet, clearly, what we have here are eyewitness accounts. Um, uh, Robert Dick Wilson, Professor Robert Dick Wilson, uh, wrote an emphat- a, a fantastic um, study looking at the authenticity of this. And of course, there's Bill Cooper's book, um, The Authenticity of the Book of Daniel, which I would commend to you. It's not a particularly long book, but it just shows that what we have here is historical and it's uh, reliable in terms of the information that we're given. Um, now, the second section is the dreams and visions. Now, kind of chapter two does kind of fit into that because, of course, it is this dream and this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. But specifically, chapters seven, eight, nine, and then chapters 10 through 12. So those six chapters are the ones where Daniel now is getting these visions, seeing these things and recording them. So this incredible book is in many respects, it's like the revelation of the Old Testament because of the things it reveals. God revealing to his servants the things that must shortly come to pass just as Revelation revealed those things to John, and John obviously passed them on to the church in uh, the writing that he gave us. So um, Daniel, of course, we've seen already, uh, didn't just uh, fade away at the end of the Babylonian Empire. He carried on through the Persian Empire and so on. And we see at this point, he's around about 68 years old. Now, this is still the Babylonian Empire under Belshazzar. We'll see that as we go into the first verse. But again, a 68-year-old man, uh, still serving, still in ministry, um, taken uh, from Babylon, so from Jerusalem when he was only about 14 years of age with his friends and spent his entire lifetime serving these pagan and foreign kings. But he was an incredible ambassador and a witness uh, and revealing to them that there is only one God who rules in the kingdoms of men. And that, of course, is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. With that, let's then jump into the text of Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed, and then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. So as you said a moment ago, chapter six has moved back in time from where we were last week. Uh, we've been looking at uh, Cyrus and then Darius, uh, the king that takes over the rule and reign of Babylon under Cyrus's uh, um, overall um, control of the empire. But now we're jumping back a little bit historically uh, to the first year of Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar, this king, this uh, son-in-law effectively of Nebuchadnezzar, comes to the throne uh, and we're told that this is in his first year. So around about 552 BC, it's about 11 years after chapter four and about 12 years after chapter five. And we looked already at the kings of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was Nebuchadnezzar's dad, uh, conquered a lot. 
Uh, and then, of course, Nebuchadnezzar comes to the throne and carries on really raising up the empire to the to its height, really, uh, from 605 BC, when he uh, really kind of receives word that his father's not well. And in 606, his father dies. And that's when really he becomes also oh, going the other way. 606, rather, because we're counting down BC. 606 is when uh, he re- receives word that his father uh, has died. 605 is when he becomes uh, king or at least his first regal year, first year as king. Um, and then you see that his sons sit on the throne, none of them for a particularly long period of time. Uh, and then we find that we get down to uh, uh, Nito Chris's daughter, uh, who marries Nebonidas, who's an unpopular king, and that it's their son. Um, so it's like his grandson, uh, correction, I think I said son-in-law earlier, but his grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, is the one that we're looking at now. And he's the last king of the Babylonian Empire before it falls as we saw depicted for us very clearly in chapter 5, to the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus. And again, these kings are mentioned in various other places in the Old Testament. Now, of course, Daniel has his life of service, and we might presume that at 62, Daniel was kind of winding down. Uh, And yet at the end of chapter 8, when we get there, uh, which occurs in the third year of uh, Belshazzar, which is two years after this event, uh, Daniel returns to do the king's business. So he's still serving the king, still serving in Babylon, even at this kind of ripe old age, uh, moving on and all these things he's experienced and everything else. Um, So he's still actively involved in the government of Babylon. It's important to mention that, you know, we never retire from ministry. You know, we never stop serving God. It's not that you get to a certain point and that's it. Your job's done. You can sit back and put your feet up. You know, in fact, in many respects, people, as they grow in uh, in age also, because they're growing in knowledge and grace, serve even more in their latter years than sometimes they've done in their former. Uh, we see many great Christian authors uh, a lot of their work was done in the the, twi- the twilight years of their life that god really used them uh, drawing on the experiences and the things that he taught them through their ministry and their life and i think some of the the teachers that have blessed me greatly uh, people like chuck misler people like dave hunt and others uh, a lot of the work they did was actually uh, in the latter years of their lives so you know as christians we don't ever get to that point where we retire we're continually serving, we're continually in ministry, being ambassadors for the Lord, you know, going wherever he calls us. And of course, he will give us the strength to do whatever it is that he calls us to do. And at the very least, we could all be praying. Uh, and, you know, the more we grow in grace, the more we recognize the need to pray. So uh, we read then in this first year that Daniel has this dream. So this is now what we're going to be focusing on in this study this morning. Yeah, and it seems that this chapter is actually being recorded at Daniel's request by someone else. Uh, probably someone that was assigned to serve him. Of course, Daniel in the position that he was in, effectively prime minister over the realm of Babylon. Um, quite uh, conceivably, we've had somebody to take notes for him to record. And seemingly the way this is written, you'll see a few pointers that suggest that Daniel was just kind of relaying this stuff, almost dictating it and said, just, just write this down. I've got to I've got to get this, this out. You know, we'll see Daniel's really quite shaken by this dream, but knows it's important once it recorded. Uh, and so that if you notice the expression there, uh, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. So he's gone to sleep at night. He's, he's about to settle down and then he has his dream. And then he wrote the dream and then he told the sum of the matters. OK, so he obviously scribbles down things, but then he gets somebody else because he told the sum of the matters. Uh, seemingly, again, as I suggested, uh, giving this to somebody else to record. Either way, we have it in scripture for us. The dream itself, more akin to a nightmare uh, you're going to see. 
Interestingly, Daniel seems to be more troubled by this dream than he did by the prospect of being thrown into the lions, which would happen some years from this point. Um, Daniel, uh, again, trusted God implicitly, but yet to get this dream, and you'll see why as we go through, Daniel clearly was troubled by this dream that he receives. Uh, and of course, recognizes the importance uh, recorded the sum of the matters, getting it down for us. And we, of course, are beneficiaries of all that Daniel recorded. So Daniel chapter 7 verse 2 says, Daniel spoke and said, so, so there you go. So Daniel speaking and says, so this would imply that he's dictating this or somebody else is recording it. And, and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. Okay, there's two things here we need to just try and understand if we can. First thing being the four winds of heaven. Interestingly, the four winds are mentioned nine times in Scripture, uh, and you can see the references there. Uh, you can look that up uh, in your leisure if you wish to. Um, but interestingly, nine is the number that's always associated with judgment in the Bible uh, in various ways. And these nine times that these four winds occur uh, seem to be ushering judgment. Uh, you know, it would appear to be the case that this vision is doing exactly the same or bringing restoration following a period of judgment, but connected to judgment one way or another. Uh, it also implies that go global situation, the four winds. Uh, the idea is really the four cardinal points of the compass, north, south, west and east. And so the four winds all blowing in, uh, all moving. Something's about to happen. You know what it's like. You're out on a nice day and suddenly the wind picks up and you look up and you see a cloud that's blowing in and you detect that rain's about to come. Yeah, whenever the wind picks up, you recognize the clouds are moving uh, and something's about to happen. The same or clearly uh, in this vision is going on. Uh, the next thing we're told about is this great sea, that these winds strove upon the great sea. Now, it could be that this great sea is a reference to the Mediterranean. At the time, the Mediterranean was known as the Great Sea. Uh, of course, it was the largest sea in that particular region. Of course, it was the closest you'd get to the the, uh, the open ocean, as it were. Um, and so that may well be the, the idea. And certainly there's, there's uh, significance because these nations that we're going to see that are depicted in this dream are all based around the Mediterranean region, the Middle East and so on. So uh, that may well be the case. But, you know, the sea also in Scripture uh, is used as an idiom of the people and nations of the world. Uh, we see that in Revelation 17 verse 15 explained to us. And the Bible is very consistent with its uses of you know, usage of ideas and themes and concepts. Uh, so when you see something mentioned, uh, sea typically always has this idea of the peoples or nations of the world. And you'll find that consistently used throughout Scripture. Many other things uh, are used. There's the scholars have a, a term they refer to as expositional constancy. Sounds very grand, doesn't it? But all it is really is the idea that there's this constant theme and ideas that run through scripture. Birds, for example, whenever birds are presented, they're always presented in a negative light. Um, you know, Solomon course is compared to the birds but again the birds are pictured in a negative sense in Matthew 13 the birds are those that snatch away the seed they're depicted as workers uh, emissaries of Satan they come and dwell in the branches of the the tree the mustard seed that grows up into something it should never have been and so on so uh, if you look at birds in scripture there's always a negative connotation something's dark or sinister associated with it 
And so you just you become sensitive as you read the Bible. These themes are there throughout. God, clearly the author of all of Scripture and these ideas under the surface, not that the writers necessarily intended it, but God has engineered these things to show his fingerprints, his design through all of this. So we see that what's about to happen is going to have a global impact. It's going to affect all the people of the nations of the earth. And we read verse three and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. Okay, so we're going to see this explained now, these four beasts. We're going to be told in verse 17 that these great beasts are going to represent four kings or kingdoms. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily mean four kings in specific individuals. Uh, although that could be applied as well. But certainly kingdoms is the idea here. Uh, and the Aramaic that is used, it could mean either. In chapter two, again, the children are looking at this morning in their study. Uh, we saw that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, this vision of the statue that again was representing these world kingdoms that were to come. But interestingly, on that occasion, Daniel interpreted the golden head of the statue to represent Babylon, that the chest and the arms of silver were to be Medo-Persia, and the belly and the thighs of brass or of bronze were to represent the kingdom of Greece, specifically under Alexander the Great. And then we finally get the two phases of the Roman Empire, uh, with the ten toes at the bottom of each feet, or five at the bottom of each leg, obviously, uh, and these toes uh, mixed with iron, this mixture of iron and clay. And uh, there's comments in chapter two. We'll see more of that uh, to come in our studies yet future in Daniel. Um, but this is this image is presented. But of course, we look at this and it all seems kind of almost quite wonderful. This is it's not necessarily presented in a bad light. Um, but the vision that Daniel is going to get now, we get a totally different take, but seemingly of the same thing. It's as if it's the same vision, but from a completely different standpoint, a different vantage point that reveals them in a light that we didn't see back in chapter two. Now, of course, there are commentators that question, are they the same? Are these beasts of the kingdoms uh, in chapter seven the same as chapter two? Uh, well, I'll nail my colours to the mask straight away. I absolutely believe they are. I think there's too many similarities. There's too many little hints that we get to tell us that we are looking at the same thing. Um, but I just need to be honest with you. Scholars are divided. And there are essentially two options. The classical view, this is the one I would tend to lean to, proposes that the four beasts do represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome in those two phases, as, as it was in chapter two. Um, whereas in chapter two, there is seen as this impressive metal image, as we just mentioned here, they're seen as wild beasts. And it's really seems to be contrasting man's view of these empires, as we saw in chapter two, with God's perspective of these kingdoms, which is what we're getting here in chapter seven. So chapter two seems to be man's view of these empires. Of course, chapter seven now seems to be presenting the same thing, but God's perspective and God sees them as these wild, uh, ravenous beasts, effectively. But the second view uh, of this suggests that all these kingdoms are yet to arise at some point in the future. And when they do, they'll all arise simultaneously. Now, there are some good scholars that hold that position. So it's worthy of investigation and study uh, in the notes that I'll send out later. I'll give some more detail about these things. But um, if this is the case and they are yet to arise, then certainly they have the characteristics 
of the nations that we'll be talking about as we go through this study this morning. So clearly there's elements of all the nations that have been will be in these beasts one way or another. Um, but it's generally agreed, of course, that the final phase of the last beast that we're going to be talking about is the same as the ten toes in chapter two, the ten horns and the ten kings that are mentioned in Revelation seventeen twelve. So clearly that is yet future. And in a sense, that's the bit that really is most applicable and most interesting to us because it's not history. It's something that is definitely yet to come. So those are kind of the, the positions. But let's go through the text and we'll see what we can make of it. So verse four says, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. Now, back in chapter two, if you remember very clearly, Nebuchadnezzar was told that he was the head of gold. Um, and of course, lions are the chief amongst the beasts, just as Babylon was chief of the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, certainly in this uh, array that we have here, Babylon was the greatest. It was the most powerful. Nebuchadnezzar was autonomous, didn't answer to anybody. He made the rules. And if he didn't want them, he just changed them. Uh, he was in complete control. And so there's a, obviously a similarity here with lions. Uh, and we know the creatures representing lions with wings were on the walls and gates around Babylon. Lions were very, very uh, prevalent at that time in that region. Uh, we, of course, see it in Chapter six, as we were looking at last week, where Daniel is uh, thrown into this lion's den. And we read a number of comments from Robert Wilson last week where he commented that there were, of course, many menageries at that time that the kings had where they would keep lions and so on. And that's typically a, a representation. That's, that's actually a, a figure that's in the British Museum. So if you go to the British Museum in London, you can see that. Uh, and you see there this kind of man's head, the typical, typical kind of Babylonian kind of beard goatee, uh, but with wings on this body of this beast. Uh, and so people have concluded that this is kind of a, a lion with these wings and so on. Uh, just going back to the verse again, what we're told is the first was like a lion. Well, Babylon certainly was like a lion, had eagle's wings. Again, it was very swift and very powerful and so on. Uh, but notice that the wings were plucked off. Now, does that just ring a little bit like chapter four of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar and his humility where he's made to go and eat grass like the oxen and so on, uh, lifted up from the earth, but made to stand up on the feet and notice what the conclusion is and that this man's heart was given to it. And that's exactly what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He was effectively given a new heart as he comes to realize that God is the one who appoints kings to their thrones. He's in charge of the kingdoms of men. So he realized that now Babylon, of course, the empire uh, was a large empire at that time, spreading all the way through uh, typically Iran, Iraq, uh, all the way through uh, the Fertile Crescent, down through Syria and, of course, down into Israel. And that was the region uh, and uh, the southern portion of Turkey, as we would know it today. And behold, another beast, verse five, a second like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. So if we are right in our assumption that these are the same empires as in chapter 2, then we would expect this beast to be representative of Medo-Persia. Well, it seems to fit so well because of the details. Uh, again, a bear is not as swift as a lion, nor as majestic 
And of course, that was the way it was with Medo-Persia. We know from history that Medo-Persia was a bear-like kind of in, in its lumbering strength and conquering many enemies and even without a battle. Uh, we understand of Medo-Persia and what it was accomplished there. But, you know, it was a united empire of the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus, the one that did that. And yet Persia was the stronger, uh, which would seem to be implied by this bear-like beast rising up on one side. So there seems to be these ideas in here. And interestingly, there were three main conquests that really established the Medo-Persian Empire, namely Babylon, Egypt and Lydia. And so we notice that this bear, stronger on one side than the other, has these three ribs in its mouth uh, between its teeth. And again, it's told him to arouse, arise, devour much flesh. So again, seemingly, uh, this is what we're looking at again. But this is from God's perspective, seeing that this is a beast. So Babylon was then eclipsed by the Persian Empire, uh, the largest empire the world had known to that point, stretching all the way from India into Africa, down into Ethiopia, and even up into uh, the border of, kind of Macedonia and Greece and covering all of Turkey as well. So, and of course, covering Israel. And, and you need to appreciate that everything we have in Scripture is always Israel-centric. Israel is always seen as being the center. Everything we look at, we look at through the lens of Israel. If we understand that, uh, then we'll realize that all these things really are given to us because of the impact, not just globally, but specifically on the nation of Israel. And then after this, I beheld and lo, another like a leopard. Well, we know, of course, that leopards are incredibly swift creatures. They run very fast. One of the fastest uh, land animals. Uh, this leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. Now, that's interesting. Look, there's these four. Uh, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, this seemingly would represent the kingdom of Greece, uh, this historical empire that followed after the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, and again, leopards, swift creatures, uh, and they, these um, wings, again, implying even greater speed. Of course, it's fitting the description of the Empire of Greece under Alexander the Great. Now, if you remember from history at school, if you listened, uh, Alexander was an incredible individual. He conquered the known world in lightning speed. It was kind of pretty much unparalleled in history. Uh, it's recorded that at the age of 29, the young Alexander fell on his bed and wept because there were no more lands to conquer. Uh, a very bright, wise individual, uh, real military st uh, strategician and genius, really. But on his deathbed, only at 33 years old, staggering, really, uh, Alexander was asked, to whom shall the empire be given? And his answer was simple. It was give it to the strong. Uh, and yet within a year of this, his empire had been divided up between his four generals. So again, these four heads, very significant in this vision, seemingly depicting this empire of Alexander the Great, which was divided amongst his four generals. generals. Now, again, we look at the uh, Greek empire, which again covered this huge area of the Middle East and through India. Of course, Alexander pushed the borders even further than the Persian Empire had done. And of course, all of Macedonia and Greece and North Africa, and so on. But when he died, the empire was then split. And Cassandra took the area of Macedonia and Greece. Uh, Lysimachus took the area which today we think of as Turkey. Uh, and of course, those are important. But the real ones that are interesting to us are Seleucus, who takes really a huge part of the empire, all of the uh, the Middle East, really, going all the way through to India, 
although they lost that territory relatively quickly. Um, but looking after or, or ruling over Iran, Iraq, um, and so on. And then we have the um, Ptolemy, one of his other generals, who was given the opportunity to take a larger share, but chose to take this area, typically Egypt and, and down into Ethiopia and so on. But what you'll notice is between Ptolemy and Seleucus, there's a really important piece of land. It's the land, of course, of Israel. And so Israel becomes this buffer state between the two. And what we'll see when we get to Daniel chapter 11 is this battle between the Seleucid dynasties and the Ptolemaic dynasties battling between each other. And it's staggering because we have so many prophecies given to us, all of which have now been fulfilled, that detailed exactly what was going to happen. And typically a lot of that took place in the period of time between the closing of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi and then the beginning of the New Testament with the book of Matthew. There's about a 400-year period, which scholars, scholars sometimes refer to as the silent years, but they're not silent because they are actually recorded in advance in Daniel 11, and we'll enjoy it when we get there because it really is quite incredible. So this was the Greek Empire. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. Daniel, you kind of get the impression here, he's struggling to articulate what he's looking at and just how scary this is. He's seen this in a dream, and this beast, beast is totally unlike anything. Uh, that he's seen before. Dreadful, terrible, strong, exceedingly. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before. It had, tell, uh, it had 10 horns. Now again, the fourth beast corresponds to the Roman Empire, seemingly in its two phases. Now, it's interesting to note that the fourth beast here that Daniel's describing is so unlike anything else that Daniel doesn't try to compare it to an animal. You know, with, with Babylon, you can easily compare it to a lion, Medo-Persia, you can compare that to a bear. With Greece, you can compare it to a leopard. Rome, there was, there was nothing. It was so unlike anything that Daniel could can imagine or picture. And clearly, uh, it's disturbing as he looks at it. Uh, and again, he just simply tells us it's dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. Now, of course, we need to highlight there that it had 10 horns. All right. Now we're going to come back to this. This is really significant. Uh, but let's just make a few comments, first of all, because in chapter two, we're told that Rome was strong as iron for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things. And as iron that breaks all things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Well, of course, that was true of the Roman Empire. And so this similar picture is painted, which indeed echoes the history of the Roman Empire. They took delight in crushing and destroying their foes. And verse 24, when we get there in a short while, will tell us that these ten horns are to arise out of this kingdom. So this is why when we talk about a revised Rome or Rome in two phases, we're dealing with this idea that we have the Rome that we know of from history and yet out of Rome, we're going to have these 10 horns or 10 kings that are going to come to power in the latter days, in the time that is yet ahead of us. Rome, incidentally, we need to make mention of this, uh, had both a familiar Western leg. We're familiar, of course, with Rome itself, with Italy, and of course, the conquest up through France, Gaul, as it was at the time, and then into this country. And, uh, you know, we're grateful for some of the, the roads that the Romans built. Uh, some of them which uh, survive uh, far beyond the roads we can build today. 
And of course, the Romans had this um, tendency to build very straight roads. You can recognize often if you're on a Roman road in this country because it doesn't keep having bends and turns and corners. It's a straight road and so on. But we're familiar with, of course, the Western Lake because this country was indeed part of that. But there was the less publicized eastern leg of the empire. Now, it's interesting that the vision that we have in chapter two, there are two legs. No uh, um, mistake in the, the ideas, the idiom that's used of this creed or this statue with these two legs. Uh, the eastern leg actually outlived the western leg by about a thousand years. Interesting now, but again, the two legs seem to correspond then to these two legs of the statue in chapter two. Uh, interestingly, it's worth mentioning the prophecy, prophecy students often focus on the Western or the European element of Rome uh, and largely ignore the Eastern Empire that included Assyria, Babylon, so Iran, Iraq and so on and North Africa. Now, we need to be aware of this because when we talk of these 10 kings that are going to come out of this empire, the assumption, and it might be correct, the assumption is that it will come straight out of Europe. But Europe was only part of the old empire, and the two legs are depicted in this statue. And notice that we have five toes on each foot, on each leg, effectively. So I just show, share that with you because any idea that presents a purely European uh, order of things to come might not be entirely correct. So just be sensitive to that. Uh, interestingly enough that the uh, eastern leg of the empire is what is today prominently Muslim nations. If you look there, you see the extent of the empire. But of course, if you look at the to the right of the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, you've got Asia Minor. And you've got the whole of that area of Turkey off into Iraq, uh, Iraq as it is today, uh, bordering on Iran as well. And then, of course, all of North Africa as well so just be sensitive to uh, the extent that the roman empire covered now if these 10 toes uh 10 horns are going to come out of this nation or this this empire it's going to be from that collective not just what we think of as europe so just again be sensitive to that verse 8 i consider the horns and behold there came up among them another little horn now this is so significant okay so pay attention to this bit before whom the, uh, there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And this is the vision that Daniel's seeing. So he sees these 10 horns, but then another horn comes up and then three of the first horns fall before it. And this, this, the last horn that comes up uh, succumbs or uh, seduces them, uh, brings them in under its dominion. And we're told it has uh, eyes like a man speaking great things. In verse 11, we're going to find this horn is also given a personal pronoun showing that clearly there is an individual behind this. There is a person that this horn represents. Now, this little horn is speaking blasphemous things. Uh, of course, blasphemy against God, against the God of heaven. And it's going to subdue again, as we said, three of those original ten horns. And this is the one, and we'll see this described for us clearly here, but also uh, subsequently in our studies as we go through the other visions that Daniel's going to have. Uh, this is the one that we refer to and label as Antichrist. There's actually about 33 titles in the Old Testament and about 14 or so in the New of this individual. The one that sticks, the one that we're most familiar with is Antichrist. Um, but there are a number of names by which this individual goes in Scripture. Now, 
In Revelation 17, we find there we are introduced to these ten horns again. A lot of similarities with the things that Daniel saw in his visions and the things that John records for us. So in Revelation 17, we read, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. There you go. Very clear. There's no ambiguity. A lot of people say, oh, Revelation is very confusing. I don't understand it. Well, then read. Learn to read because it's not that complicated if you read. Yeah, it's like a jigsaw. You have to piece things together. But everything's explained. You're given the, the explanation to the idioms and the ideas that are used there. Very clearly, the ten horns are ten kings, okay, which have received no kingdom as yet but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Now, that would imply a short period of time. Um, that expression, one hour, I don't believe in this context it's referring to a just literal 60 minutes, but for a very short period of time. And we're told that these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Now, this beast is described for us. It's the same as the little horn that we're looking at here, uh, this individual that subdues three. Um, but these 10 kingdoms are going to arise at some point in our days, potentially ahead of us. It could happen any time now. We're going to see onto the world stage come 10 kings or 10 kingdoms. Now, it seems to be, from what we're told, clearly out of the old Roman Empire. So it could be from the uh, the eastern or the western leg or a combination of both. But these 10 kings, 10 kingdoms are going to rise to power and authority. And seemingly they're going to have power over the whole earth. Quite interesting when we look at what's going on in the world today to see these things starting to, to settle and to move into place. And Daniel says, I behold, till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. So a little shift of focus now because the shift, the focus turns now from looking at these beasts now to looking at something really quite wonderful. Now, the phrase that we have there, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. In our mindset, we may tend, tend to think that thrones are destroyed or, or brought down. Now, that's not the implication. Literally, what it's saying is that the thrones were set in place. You know, as if you were to lay something out, to cast it down, to put it down. As if you were to go out for a, a picnic, for example, and you cast down your picnic blanket. You're laying it down. You're putting it in place. That's the kind of idea. And so that's what it's saying. Uh, and note again, it's plural here. The thrones were cast down. The thrones were put in place. Who, which thrones? Whose thrones? We'll come to that in a second. And then we notice we were introduced to the Ancient of Days did sit. Okay, this, this is quite a, a, a grand scene that Daniel is now uh, describing for us in his vision. Whose garment was white as snow. And we're told that of this ancient of days and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Now, we could spend a morning just pulling out from this verse the themes that we see elsewhere in Scripture. <clears throat> but let me just again make mention that the thrones that we're specifically looking at are not the throne of the ten horns, nor the throne of the little horns. Okay, these are the thrones that are placed alongside the Ancient of Days. When we go to Revelation chapter 20, we read this. And I saw thrones, there we go, plural, many of them. And they sat upon them, who's they? And judgment was given unto them. 
And then we told, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Interesting. So we're told that those who give their lives in the tribulation, who put their faith and trust in Jesus after the rapture of the church, they would be given the opportunity to reign with Christ. So seemingly, some of those certainly will be the ones who will sit upon these thrones. But, you know, there are two distinct groups in Scripture that we're told that will reign with Christ, that will sit upon thrones during the millennial reign of Christ when he returns to establish his throne and kingdom, the throne of David. Firstly, the bride of Christ, the church, you and I, effectively. 2 Timothy 2.12, Revelation 5.10, make it very clear that we will be given authority, that we will get to rule and reign with Christ. And then, as we've just seen, those who are going to be beheaded for their witness during the tribulation time. So these thrones would seem to be the thrones that we've just seen in Daniel. Uh, that's going to be the Christians and the martyrs from the tribulation are going to get to sit on those. Now, whether there'll be all of the, the church or simply, and I would suspect this, it will be those who overcome. Okay, because this is what scripture tells us. You know, it's those who overcome that will sit and rule and reign with Jesus, not just those who are saved. But there's a, a an additional thing here that it's not just about being saved. It's about learning to be an overcomer. And those are the ones to whom these privileges will be granted. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 actually says this. It says, it is a faithful saying. If we be dead with him, we should also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Now, notice there's a prerequisite there. It's not talking about salvation, but it's saying if we suffer, if you suffer as a believer, if you're persecuted for your faith, if you stand up for what you believe, then we shall also reign with him. It's not a grant that, that all Christians are going to sit and rule and reign with him. Uh, it seems to be a prerequisite that there has to be either suffering or certainly service, uh, overcoming that we learn uh, is the prerequisite. And then the reward for that is that we get to rule with him. Who is the Ancient of Days? Well, we looked a little bit at this earlier, but from John's description in Revelation, it clearly seems to be Jesus Christ. Let me read this to you from John. Uh, so Revelation chapter 1. And just some picking up some verses from between 9 and 18. It says, I, John, was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me and we're told that his head was and his hairs were white like wool. Well, that's what Daniel saw. As white as snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Daniel saw that fire and his feet like under fine brass as if they burn in the furnace and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and in his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun uh, shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. All right, so the similarities between Daniel's and John's visions would lead us to conclude that this is none other than Jesus Christ. However, in verse 13, we find that Jesus comes to the Ancient of Days. Okay, clearly from the context, it has to be Jesus, we see, who comes to the Ancient of Days, meaning that the Ancient of Days must be God the Father. So why do we have this idiom? Why do we have these two looking so similar? If in Daniel, 
the one that is depicted there is God the Father, and yet in Revelation, seemingly an identical image, an identical person is Jesus Christ, and that's clearly the case of Revelation. Why do they look so similar? Well, let me remind you of this. Jesus said to Philip in John 14, verse 9, Have I been so long a time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And remember in John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and my father are one. It's no surprise that Jesus in Revelation chapter one and God the father in Daniel chapter seven look identical because they are one. So that's why I believe we have this similarity. But to be clear, in Daniel chapter seven, it seems that the ancient of days is God the father. And Jesus, the son, will come unto him. We'll see that as we go through the text. Let's just carry on. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. I would suggest that we will be amongst that group. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the judgment was set and the books were opened. Well, this is quite a, a scary moment for planet Earth because God, the ancient of days, and Jesus, his uh, the one who's, who, to whom he's appointed all judgment, have this throne set. And notice, not only do we have the thousands, thousands, thousands ministering to him, but notice specifically what we're told, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Okay, now this fiery stream that's coming out from before him would create a left-right divide. Just think about it logically. Okay, there's a stream that's coming out. Naturally, there's going to be two sides. So that stream runs down the middle. There's going to be a left. There's going to be a right. Either you're going to be on one side or you're going to be on the other. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Matthew 25, where the sheep and the goat nations are judged? Okay, and of course, uh, those that treated Jesus's brethren well, that's the Jews, are going to be given the reward of going into the millennial kingdom. Those that treated Jesus's brethren badly that didn't provide that didn't look after them persecuted them those will be cast into everlasting fire now again just want to go back to that number uh, that i mentioned ten thousand times ten thousand now it could just be an expression and quite likely it is because in ancient systems for counting they didn't tend to go much beyond a thousand most of the, the systems didn't need to do that so it might just imply a countless number, and probably that's fine and we're happy with that. But I just throw this out because it may actually mean what it says. And it's quite a scary thought. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. All right, it's provocative because it could mean that after the various judgments of the tribulation period, which will culminate in the Battle of Armageddon, 100 million is all that will be left on the earth. Now, I throw that out there because it's a possibility. Certainly, we do know that about one and a half billion people are going to die under the fourth seal in Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8. And that's only the beginning of the tribulation. There's far more and far worse to come from that point. So it could well be that the earth really is purged and only a handful of people comparatively will be left to go into the millennial kingdom. So I just throw it out there, although it may just be a, a reference to a multitude. It could also imply that there is a limited number to that multitude that is left. <clears throat> and then we're told that the books were opened. Well, which books? Well, may I suggest that it could be 66 books that reveal God's righteous law, his righteous standard, and that reveals salvation is available to all 
who have ears to hear, to all who repent and put their trust in Jesus. And those who reject those 66 books will be judged by the things that are written in those books. So there may be other books. Of course, Scripture speaks of a number of books that God has. God keeps a book in which he records all of our tears and so on. Um, So there are other books that are alluded to, but I would suspect that amongst the books, certainly, if not the, uh, the the ones in view here, will be the books that make up the Bible, because that is God's revelation, and it will be by those that man will be judged. Again, know that people are going to be judged by their works, by the things that are recorded. It will be their good deeds, their bad deeds. People think, you know, well, I'll be all right because, you know, I've done lots of good things. Well, the good things aren't the problem. It's the number of bad things you've done. It doesn't matter how many good things you've done. You stand before a judge and you've committed one crime, you'll be punished for that one crime. And God keeps records very well indeed. We're told in Ecclesiastes that God requires an account of that which is past. Uh, every thought, every idea that's gone through your head, uh, every action, every deed, every lustful thought, everything you've done to harm or to hurt some other person uh, will all be recorded in these books. You know, how terrifying it's going to be to be standing in that crowd and to see Jesus start to open those books, knowing that everything you've done has been recorded. You know, people, you know, would wipe their Internet history to try and remove things that they don't want others to know that they've looked at. You know, well, that's not possible with the books that Jesus keeps. You can't just cleanse or or delete your cache or get rid of information or you can't just um, you destroy uh, the evidence that you've done something. You know, Jesus will know everything. And how terrifying it's going to be for people that are standing in that situation. You know, what information do those books contain? As I said already, you know, it's a list of everything you've thought, done, said, all recorded in black and white. You know, and what kind of defense could you offer? Well, praise God that Jesus has nailed to his cross the handwriting of ordinances. Everything that was in those books, everything that was written down, that has been nailed to the cross. Everything that was written against us has been paid in full on our behalf by the blood of Jesus. Aren't you grateful to God for what he's done? And he starts to really understand that this forgiveness that cost God so much was such an incredible thing that it has not only given us eternal life, but it has purged us, as the writer to Hebrew says, not only in reality, but in our conscience as well. Uh, we are clean before God. Verse 11, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke. So now Daniel's kind of drawn his attention, is drawn to what this horn is saying. I beheld even till the beast was slain. Notice this. Uh, so this horn, also referred to as this beast here, was slain. His body, his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Now, Revelation 13 is going to be full of this beast speaking blasphemous things. Uh, we may remember when I studied Revelation, we went through looking at those things. But finally, this beast, uh, who again, we know better than Antichrist, is going to get what's coming to him. In Second Thessalonians, we're, ter- we're told that the Lord is going to consume him with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. In Revelation chapter 19, we read this. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of burning, uh, lake of fire burning with brimstone. So she speaks of the destruction of this little horn, of this individual, this uh, one who subdues these three of these kings of these empire, the empires that are coming. 
As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had the dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, I'll be honest, uh, looking through the commentaries, nobody really understands quite what this means or what it may imply. Because the last beast of the four is destroyed. We've just seen that. So this revived Roman system, uh, this one world government that seemingly is going to come to the fore, of which Antichrist will be the head of it, that will be destroyed. But then we're told that the other beasts are prolonged. Now, what does that mean? Well, a plausible answer is that the spiritual powers behind those kingdoms will be removed from office because they have their dominion taken away. Okay, and yet they're not destroyed until after the millennium. Now, we've already spoken a bit about Babylon and the way that the Babylonian influence is infiltrating our world today uh, with uh, the green agenda and mysticism and all these kind of ideas that were birthed in Babylon. They're permeating our culture and taking over uh, in many senses. Um, but what about the others? Well, again, back in chapter four, we looked at Babylon. But Greece, well, there's that thirst for learning and wisdom. It rejects the simplicity of the gospel. And of course, that continues today in our education systems. Medo Persia, of course, has spawned false religions such as Zoroastrianism uh, and that modern day Persia, i.e., Iran, is an area today associated with a passionate hatred of Israel. So it may imply that God will take away the authority of the spiritual powers that are behind these things, and yet the remnant may be able to remain, these nations may continue into the millennial reign of Christ, and then, of course, to be destroyed at the end thereof. Verse 13 goes on and says, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man come with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought near uh, before him. So this now seems to be Jesus Christ. The one with this, the, 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 the one like the son of man come with the clouds of heaven. Of course, Revelation tells us that that's how Jesus will come back. Matthew 24 and so on. That's how Jesus will return and he's going to come to the ancient of days, and they are brought near before him. And there was given him dominion to Jesus, dominion. Again, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, Gabriel promises Mary that Jesus will sit on the throne of David. He's going to rule and reign over the house of Israel, in fact, over the whole world. That has never happened. That didn't happen when Jesus came the first time. So either Gabriel got it wrong, or all those that deny that there will be a millennium, the amillennialists, they'll all be uh, silenced at this point because there was given him a dominion and a glory and a kingdom. Now notice this has to be literal, that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. What we were singing, weren't we, in that song this morning, these words. His kingdom is everlasting. This cannot be anything other than a literal kingdom because he's given rule and reign over these all peoples, nations, languages. Okay, that you can't allegorize that. And really, this should be, this verse on its own should be the end of amillennialism. That's the idea that there won't be a literal millennium. Sadly, much of the church, and it comes back from the Roman, or comes out of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, from Augustine typically and others, uh, and it was passed down. And when, of course, the uh, Church of England came out of the Catholic Church, there were some good things that were reclaimed, understanding that were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But many other doctrines were not addressed. Things like the end times, uh, things like uh, the the pur purpose and place of Israel in God's plan and so on. 
Uh, and so this idea of amillennialism crept in and it's insidious. It's dangerous. Uh, keep away from it. Warn brothers and sisters in Christ that you meet if they've been led down this path, that it is ungodly in character because it suggests that man will bring about some sort of change in the earth and that when we have done this wonderful work, then Jesus may or may not come back physically, depending on your point of view. Uh, and that Jesus will then establish some sort of kingdom when it's all done. Well, this is not what this verse says. This is saying that Jesus Christ is going to be given this kingdom. God the Father will give it to him. He is the one that is going to establish the throne, and it will be over all nations, languages, and they'll serve him. And just as in 2 Samuel 7, a really important chapter of scripture, uh, God promised to David that his son would sit on his throne, not just Solomon, but looking forward to the Messiah, would sit on his throne. It would be an everlasting kingdom. Seven times in chapter uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, seven times we're told that that kingdom will be everlasting. It can't be more emphatic. And this verse, really important, Daniel 7, 14, okay, tells us that Jesus will return. He will rule on the earth over all nations. And it will be a kingdom that will go into eternity. When Christ's kingdom is established, it will be literal and unmistakable. Daniel says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body and the visions of my head troubled me. I mean, this was a huge amount to try and take on board. We've got history to look back on. Daniel's just trying to unravel this. And of course, it's important to understand that Daniel at this time was looking for the reestablishment of Israel as their 70 years in Babylon was drawing to a close. In fact, by my reckoning, I think they've got about 15 years to go. Daniel knew that 60 years had been accomplished and that they were coming towards the end of that time. So he's thinking, what's going to happen to Israel and now it must have been quite a shocker to realize that all of these beasts have got to come first before the real restoration of Israel can take place. Now, yes, the Jews did go back to their land, but they never went back with that uh, throne, with that kingdom that they'd known previously. In fact, from this point, there is no king in Israel and of course, by the time that we get to the gospel period, we have Herod, who's an Idumean and so on, but there was no king. It's the Magi that come from Babylon that come looking for the rightful king and they acknowledge that Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews, whose kingdom is still yet to come. The disciples were confused about that, if you remember. They asked the question uh, at the time of the ascension, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus effectively says, not yet. But this is it. This is when it's going to happen. So Daniel was troubled by those things. And he says, I came near unto one of them that stood by uh, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and maybe know the interpretation of the things. Now, we've already kind of unpacked it a little bit as we've going through. So we don't need to go uh, too deep now because we've already covered all of this. But who is Daniel speaking to at this point? We're not told. It could be an angel, um, but someone clearly that is in the know. Uh, Daniel gets opportunity to ask. He says, could you explain this to me, please? Again, notice Daniel's attitude here. He's grieved and troubled, but he doesn't kick back. He doesn't say, oh, it's too confusing. Oh, I don't understand it. But he sets his heart on finding out the truth. You know, I just do encourage you never to shy away from digging into scripture. Never say, oh, I don't understand prophecy. That's, that's not good enough. It's not a, a good position because so many times in scripture, we have warnings uh, and situations where people rejected and ignored prophecy and paid the price. We need to be aware of what the word of God says. God has given it to us so that we do know. Verse 17, these great beasts, which are four or four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. So we've said that already. 
And again, as the one stood by him starts to interpret these things, again, you can just picture Daniel listening really intently as these things are being explained. And uh, the first thing he's told, as we've noted, again, that the four beasts represent the four kings or kingdoms that are coming. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, remember what I said a moment ago about Daniel's perspective, what he was looking for. And he's given some really good news here. But the question we just need to clarify is what is meant by saints? Well, the clue is what Dan Daniel would have understood it to be in 552 BC. Daniel wouldn't have understood anything about the church or known that the church was coming. Now, clearly there are allusions here, I believe, to the church in these things we've already mentioned. But the saints of the most high. Well, we often hear that title saints and we tend to think of super Christians, you know, but really the, the term saints can apply to any who are followers of Christ. Certainly that's the New Testament use of the term. But Christians are not the only group in the Bible to be referred to as saints. In fact, if we uh, to take these verses referring to Christians, we've got a real problem when we get to verse 21, because we find that the horn there, this king who's going to rise and rule over, will prevail over the saints. Well, Jesus said that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. Well, that alone tells us that this group of saints that's being referred to here in Daniel 7 is not the church. It only leaves us one other option, and that is that Daniel would have understood this, that the ones referred to are Israel, who throughout the Old Testament, of which Daniel, of course, was part, are called saints. And we've got a number of occasions we could cite where the Jews or the Israel, the nation of Israel, are referred to as saints. And again, consistent with numerous Old Testament prophecies and in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, and so on, and in chapter 15 of Genesis, um, Daniel is told that Israel will take the kingdom that God promised Abraham's seed as a possession forever. You see, you're getting this picture of these kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, of Greece, of Rome, of the Ten Kings. What follows after it? Well, the millennial reign of Christ, when Israel will take possession of the kingdom that was promised to Abraham and his seed forever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. And Daniel goes back now for a close look at this fourth beast. Again, we've already identified it as Rome, which indeed did devour and break in pieces, as we've said already. And the ten horns that were in his head and of the other which came up and before whom three fell. Even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that speaks very great things, whose look was more stout than his foes. And I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Now, this must have been troubling for Daniel because he's watching this, and no doubt to his surprise, Antichrist is given authority to make war with the Jews and prevail against them. You must understand for Daniel, this really was troubling. That's why he said this dream troubled him. You know, so great is this time of persecution that is coming on the Jews. That this is referring to now that Jeremiah labels it the time of Jacob's trouble. And Zechariah actually tells us that only a third of the Jews are going to make it through this coming Holocaust that is yet ahead of them. But we get a wonderful word at the beginning of verse 22. Until. And I've said probably many, many times, and I hope it's sunk in because Chuck Misley used to go on and I've got this in my head. Every time you see an until in the Bible, mark it. They're important. This is such an important one because Antichrist is given this, this um, authority or this ability to make war with the saints and overcome them, as in the Jews, until. 
There's going to be a cutoff. There's going to be a point where he can do that no more. God is only going to allow the Jews to go through the punishment in a sense for their sin that he's determined. It will be in like measure. There's a, a phrase that's used in the Bible a number of times that the Jews will receive double for their iniquity. That's not times two. That is an exact likeness. When you look in a mirror, you see a double. The Jews will receive an exact likeness for their iniquity. God is judging them for their rejection of him, for all the things that Deuteronomy 28 warned them against that they then went and did. But there's an until. And Antichrist will conclude that judgment, if it sense, on Israel as a nation. But up until God says enough, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints or was awarded to. That's kind of the idea there. You know, when judgment's given in favor of somebody, judgment is given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. That's the Jews will possess that land promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And a number of scripture references you can see there that promise that the Jews will be given the kingdom. So regardless of what's going on in the Middle East today, regardless of what Hezbollah will try and do or Hamas or uh, Iran or whatever else, all of them ultimately will fail because Israel will be given the kingdom. Thus he said, the false beast, false beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And then the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise and another shall rise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first and shall subdue three kings. So this is what we've already said. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, his blasphemies, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, again the Jews, and think to change times and laws. Now, I'll leave you to think what that may mean. There's lots of interesting conjecture by uh, commentators. Uh, and they shall be given into the hand unto, uh, into his hand unto, now this is the Jews will be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. What does that mean? Well, we have a number of places in scripture we can go to, but for now, let me just make it very clear that we have time, singular. That refers to one year. Times, plural, is two years, and half a time is half a year. So we have a three and a half year period over which Antichrist will be able to exert his control over Israel and persecute them. That's exactly what we're told in Revelation, that there'll be a three and a half year period, 1,260 days, 42 months, it's the same time frame. And then at that point, his rule and reign over them will come to an end. And we're told, but the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. Who's going to take away his dominion? Well, it could be in the context. It could be in reference to the saints, the Jews we've been looking at. But it could also be the ones who are sitting in judgment on the thrones, which we've already said. Uh, they will be the church and those from the tribulation. So it's a possibility. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the saints the church this time shall judge the world and if the world shall be judged by you are you yet unworthy to judge the smallest matters know you not that we shall judge angels an incredible responsibility given to the church we need to step up folks verse 27 we read and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high now that's a really interesting expression the not not shall be given to the saints with the Jews in this context, but to be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. 
The Jews will possess the kingdom, that's clear, in fulfilment of the unconditional promises made to Abraham. And to this point, the vision has all been about these ungodly earthly kingdoms of whom unlawfully possessed the land that was given to Abraham by God. Therefore, it follows that it is now given to whom it rightly belongs, the Jews. But this first now refers to this kingdom under the whole heaven. And we're told that the kingdom and dominion and the greatness under the whole heaven shall be given not to the saints, but to the people of the saints of the Most High. Now, I think that could well be a subtle reference to the church. Could it be said that the church are the people of the Jews? Well, think about it in this context, because Romans 11 tells us that we've been grafted into the olive tree of Israel, Israel itself being the natural branches. It's also true in one sense that Israel birthed the church. You know, firstly, all the apostles were Jews. The Jews were committed to, uh, oh, sorry, to the Jews were committed the oracles of God, the words of God. The Bible came from the Jews. So given the fact that the church is to reign over the whole heaven with Christ, we've seen this already. Revelation 2 says, he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I'll give power over the nations and he shall rule with them. And I shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And in Revelation 3.21, it says to him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. So surely, therefore, the people of the saints are indeed Christians and therefore the church. So it's really interesting. It ties all of these things together. Israel will get their land. They will be given this land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They'll rule over that territory that these other nations, other kingdoms have had rule over. But the church will be given responsibility over the whole earth. And what we do know without question is that the hymn in the, the verse we just looked at, to whom all dominions shall serve and obey is our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we read, hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my uh, cogitations <laughs> much troubled me, no doubt. And my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. And there is a lot to digest here. And the implications are staggering. You know, consider, uh, consider what this means for the unsafe world. Consider what it means for Israel. And consider what response will come from you. At very least, we should be praying more. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time of studying your word. Lord, impress these things upon our hearts and minds, we pray. Oh, and Lord, make us bold and faithful and obedient servants to you in these days as we see these things come to pass. We ask it all now in the name of Jesus. Amen.